Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Mario Sundar Ginetti, who is Professor of Finance at the Stockholm School of Economics. She's a research fellow at the CEPR and the European Academic Director of the Financial Management Association. Welcome, Mario Sundar. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for doing this uh, during your vacation all the way from Italy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so, so we have a number of papers uh, that uh, that. Uh, you published recently between 2019 and 2021. And uh, we have sort of two buckets of papers, um, one in the area of corporate governance and ESG, and other in monetary policy. So, so I thought I would start with uh, your 2019 paper, which sort of um, put things in context. Uh, and it's entitled, Does Money Talk? Market Discipline Through Sell-Offs and Boycotts. Uh, you say, um, you ask, can market discipline affect corporate environment and social uh, policies, E and S policies? Uh, okay. You say using international data on negative news coverage of corporate E and S risks, we show that E and S conscious investors divest firms uh, with heightened E and S risk. Um, so before we get to the details of this, how do you define E and S risk and how do you measure that? So, you know, there has been uh, a lot of interest recently about uh, corporate sustainability, and there has been uh, uh, many new companies that uh, basically provide uh, information about the news coverage, about the incidents of uh, regarding corporate, environmental, and social uh, policies. So we uh, use the data from uh, one of these companies. And these data are, have been collected, of course, if there is a news coverage of incidents uh, like the BP spill on Financial Times, Wall Street Journal, that is in the data. But uh, the company also collects information from a local newspaper, for instance, if... Uh, 
some companies um, destroying the environment with uh, polluting and so on. And uh, even from blogs and uh, websites of uh, NGOs. So basically, we have uh, new accounts of news on uh, different topics that uh, are related to a company's social policy, a company um, uh, environmental policies, and uh, these are classified depending on whether these incidents are severe or are uh, uh, something that is uh, just a minor violation of uh, regulations and uh, standards. Okay, so a lot of information um, is collected in terms of corporate actions, um, incidents, uh, policies, mm -hmm. and uh, this company essentially aggregate all that information, drive that to some yeah. sort of a metric, right? They call ENS risk. Um, yeah. And what you're finding here is that that risk score uh, essentially affect uh, investors. They take actions based on so, those. So let me do a step back. So um, since uh, investors increasingly care about uh, corporate sustainability, uh, we know also from other co work that um, negative news uh, about uh, something that the company is uh, doing regarding its environmental and social policies and the negative effect on valuation. Now, what we don't know is uh, whether uh, investors' uh, reactions can actually de determine a change in corporate policy. Okay, and uh, the news here and the data are just instrumental to try to evaluate whether market discipline works. And this is something that we didn't know from previous research. From previous research, we know, and there is a lot of, of um, there, there is also a lot of news coverage that uh, some institutional investors collapse the manager, press the board to improve some aspects of environmental and social policies. But most of the institutional investors or even individual investors don't have those resources, don't have direct access to management. So can they affect what a corporation do with the, in the way they trade by affecting the stock price? This is what we are the first to ask. Okay, and why are the news so important? Well, think of um, we can look at corporate valuation and the relate the corporate valuation to um, ownership structure and say, well, some type of investors care more about environmental and social policies, and perhaps they tend to hold the companies that have a better environmental and social policies. But that is, uh, might be just that they have chosen to buy those companies. doesn't mean that they affected those corporate policies. Okay. So basically, the idea of our research is saying, well, let's take a negative shock. Let's see if investors with certain preferences indeed show more discontent after these shocks. And then uh, let's look at what uh, the corporation does uh, afterwards. Okay. Yes. And uh, this is why the news are so important. But uh, otherwise, it's just uh, a way to have a shock that to say, well, some investors will be uh, 
more unhappy and uh, does the company answer to that? And uh, this is what we find in that paper. So we can say that the money talks. Money talks. So it's a sort of a dynamic system, isn't it? Um, and so a negative shock occurs. Perhaps the institutional investors are more tuned into it. Maybe they take actions. Maybe retail. Uh, did you see any difference between institutional investors and retail investors? How they how they might react to news? So that would be something that is would be uh, very interesting to explore, but unfortunately there are not as good data sets covering institutional investors ownership and trade. So what we can talk about uh, in uh, the current research is uh, only how different types of institutional investors react. And institutional investors have different preferences that partially reflect also the preferences of the retail investors that hold the shares in the fund. But unfortunately, that party is still silent. We can only speculate from the results of the current paper. Yeah, so in the paper you find um, companies uh, take actions based on the ENS risk metrics, uh, really driven by uh, investor uh, reactions to it. Uh, ENS risk is not a qualitative risk, isn't it? I mean, it, it does have long-term profitability questions for the uh, for the companies, I would think, right now? Yeah, so um, in, um, in the mechanism that we have in, uh, in mind uh, that we test in the paper, um, the company actually does uh, something that uh, is also desirable from the point of view of long-term value. And the reason is the following. If a company is, is for instance, headquartered in a country in which most of investors care about environmental and social policies, then if investors are discontent, we know that this company's cost of capital would increase. So the company in the long term will have uh, will be able to invest less. Will be uh, have, will have a lower valuation. Okay. So these are precisely the company that the companies that answer more when there are these shocks, because they try with their policy to reduce their cost of capital for future investment. Yeah. And I would imagine there is an effect on the consumer side too. You know, um, I don't know what the situation is in Europe, but uh, we have sort of a cancel culture now in the U.S. Um, mm -hmm. You know, when people see something, they just basically stop buying the company's products, for instance. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think the effects are not only on the financing side, but also on the on the demand side for the company's products. I would think. So uh, this is uh, an excellent question. So market discipline uh, can work uh, through the capital markets and it can also work uh, through uh, the product markets. So in that paper, we try to do uh, something to understand how the product market is working in this respect. And we take into account that the international companies in our sample sell in different countries. And again, preferences for environmental and social policies are often related to country culture. 
So we see indeed that when these incidents occur, uh, sales in countries that have a stronger preferences for environmental and social policies decrease. However, the effect that we find on market discipline is weaker. Okay, so one reason could be that even if there is a drop in sale, this drop in sale is likely to be only temporary. And one reason is that these consumers or the firms that purchase from the firm have access less information than institutional investors. If you think of it, the data sets that we use to observe these incidents, these are compiled mostly for institutional investors. The institutional investors are the main customers of the companies that collect the data. So customers and sales seem to react mostly to incidents that have broad international news coverage. And only in that case, we observe that firms that sell more to customers that are environmentally and socially conscious have a larger drop in prices. But we don't see a long-term effect in policies. There might be some data noise, but we conjecture that this market discipline to, through product market might be a, a bit weaker, not because consumers do not boycott, but perhaps because they tend to forget or they are less persistent in their policies. So. Right, right. And, and I guess uh, uh, it's, uh, it also affects where customers are. If your customers are in countries that are more conscious of, of mm -hmm. ENS policies, uh, then it might have a bigger impact. <laughs> but then yes. uh, for multinational companies, obviously, uh, that, that should not really have that much of an effect. You, you have another paper recently, Adapting to Radical Change, the benefits mm -hmm. of short horizon investors. Um, mm -hmm. You said you show that following sh uh, shocks that change in industry's competitive environment, firms with more short-term institutional investors experience smaller drops in sales and investment mm -hmm. uh, and have better long-term performance than similar firms have affected by the shocks. That is a bit counterintuitive because, yeah. um, you know, we would think in financial markets, short-term uh, traders, uh, so to speak, uh, don't really affect outcomes. But uh, it, these are not traders, but they are essentially mm -hmm. sort of short-term horizon investors, right? So they have a higher influence yeah. on corporate policies. Yeah. So um, let me uh, do a smaller step back. Your uh, intuition was some before we published this paper was uh, somehow. I received the wisdom in uh, um, the academic literature and uh, largely also in policy debate. Okay, so short-term uh, short and short-term investors in particular are often accused of the fact that the firms do not invest enough or perhaps they don't have um, policies that are sustainable in the long run and so on. 
However, if you consider um, one of the problems in Japan, Europe, and more recently also in the United States, a concern is that there are many firms that are called zombies. What is, uh, what is a zombie firm? Well, these are firms that uh, have uh, low productivity, uh, that, uh, whose market share shrinks slowly over time and so on. They look like firms that in the long term want to be able to survive the competition. Okay, and uh, um, what uh, uh, we conjecture in that paper and then we investigate empirically is that, well, sometimes forcing a management to do things fast may actually be desirable for firms to restructure and to adapt to a new environment. And uh, in order to um, show that these may have some merit, we take as an example a situation in which uh, competition increases. And uh, this, is, uh, this was uh, related, uh, for instance, uh, to the increase uh, imports uh, to the United States uh, from uh, China. This is clearly a situation in which, well, uh, some companies have to change their products. They cannot compete any longer with the low value added products that are uh, uh, produced uh, in China for uh, much lower cost. Okay. And uh, we ask do some companies uh, adapt faster than others? Okay. Short horizon investors are um, investors that have a bit different incentives, and the reason is the following. Okay, we know from a larger literature that um, uh, investors, uh, for instance, in uh, mutual funds, redeem if they see poor performance. Okay. Yeah. So in order to avoid this, uh, mutual funds and other short-term investors, if they think that a company may be underperforming and uh, will have uh, perhaps with some probability a, a price drop in the future, have a stronger incentive than investors who are not subject to redemption to sell today. Okay. So basically, companies with a lot of these short-term investors that uh, have... Uh, a higher risk of uh, a fire sales of their stocks and a larger price drop, okay? So what we say is that if the management of this company has compensation uh, that is tied to the stock price, these companies want to avoid the price, uh, price drop no matter what, and they have, may have a stronger incentives uh, to adapt. So what we observe in the data is that when this, this increase in competition occurs, companies that have relatively more short-term investors within an industry are more likely to turn over the management team, are more likely to come out with a new patent and trademarks, and this allows them to maintain a larger market share. So what we propose is that uh, short horizon, uh, short termism has a role in corporate governance that has been neglected and that can help to avoid this sort of zombification of uh, the economy.
So, so how do you differentiate here uh, in terms of horizon when you say short-term investors as opposed to long-term investors? What's the horizon you're talking about between the two? So, so basically, um, an institutional investor's job is uh, uh, to invest and uh, to generate uh, returns for uh, its investors. Okay, and uh, investors have different strategies. Okay, some investors uh, um, invest in assets that are uh, illiquid and uh, therefore generate uh, good returns only if they are held for the long term. Okay, or um, think of assets that uh, are currently undervalued but might be sought to generate a long long term return. Other investors, instead, they um, trade more on the order flow on very short-term information. So these are the short-term investors. In practice, when one tries to measure which investors are short-term, one looks at uh, the portfolio turnover of the institutional investors in the, in the past. An institutional investor so that turn over a large part of its portfolio in a quarter is a typically defined short-term investor. So this is the proxy, but this reflects uh, um, the liability structure of the investors, how much the investor is subject to the redemption, the kind of a contract that uh, the fund manager has been given, and so on. Right. And so, if I understand this correctly, um, a change in the competitive position of the company, for instance, um, mm -hmm. will have a higher drop in valuation in the horizons that short-term investors are focused on. Um, whereas in some sense, the long-term investors have the luxury to wait. And so, if I understand this correctly, um, what you're saying is that the short-term investors will be more active. <laughs> they will take actions a lot faster. And mm -hmm. that would force um, managers to take appropriate actions or, mm -hmm. or, or to bring the firm back to some extent, right? Is that precisely. is that really about it? Yeah, see, yes, precisely. So the way in which uh, I, um, I see uh, my view of corporate governance is that uh, different type of investors with different invest, uh, incentives that can cure different problems in financial markets. Of course, investors that are more long-term can help to solve long-term mispricing problems because they can see profit opportunity and they are not concerned about prices moving against them in the short term. So they, uh, of course, have an important role in financial markets, but uh, we uh, don't have to remember that sometimes um, managers may have incentives to pursue the same strategy, perhaps because their skills are better adapted to that uh, strategy and uh, changing uh, the company uh, business that to some extent would imply also admitting not to be any longer at the same match. And uh, there are other type of investors that have, uh, that provide a more short-term pressure that are more 
desirable to generate a long-term value for the company in those instances. Yeah, so sort of a, a, the right mix between short-term and long-term investors might be beneficial for the company because they get different signals in some sense yeah. um, of this investor actions, right? Precisely. Um, so, so I want to go into another recent paper you have, uh, Public Attention to Gender Equality and uh, Board uh, Gender Diversity. Um, you say we document an increase in female board representation following heightened public attention to gender equality. Mm -hmm. uh, the improvement in board gender diversity is driven by firms whose ex-ante culture is already sympathetic, mm -hmm. already sympathetic uh, to gender equality, most likely because of increased awareness by the top management rather than institutional investors' external pressure. Um, yeah, I mean, we are in 2021. It is still fascinating that we are talking about gender equality. <laughs> uh, <I laughs> well, we about... talk a lot about the gender equality <laughs> or the racial equality, or we talk a lot about uh, representation, right? So, yeah, it's. Uh, I saw an interview by a, a CEO of a, a, um, a um, airplane company recently, and uh, he was saying he needs to. Uh, he finally realized. He needs to pay higher attention to this problem. And I was thinking if, if you're a CEO of a Fortune 500 company and you just realized you have to pay attention to this problem, perhaps that's not a good job. <laughs> you know? uh, uh, and so, so you're finding here public is uh, paying more attention to this issue and it has so, some effect. Yeah, so basically um, we are all aware that uh, attention to issues like gender or racial equality that changes over time because uh, of news or coverage of uh, specific events. And uh, if we think of uh, gender equality, for instance, of course, uh, the Me Too uh, movement, uh, the Hillary Clinton campaign, um, attracted a lot of attention to this issue. But uh, also um, at the beginning of our sample period that uh, is starting 2006, there was a lot of attention to gender equality issues because it was, uh, um, if you remember in 2009, President Obama started um, enacted some um, laws uh, about uh, um, equal uh, compensation, fair compensation of, uh, for uh, women and uh, minorities. So when there, there are these events, uh, people read more news, uh, pay more attention to news about uh, equality. Okay, so to some extent, what, so what do we do there? It's very simple. We look at the Google um, searches about uh, gender equality, feminism, and so on. And uh, basically, uh, these uh, Google searches have been shown in different contexts to really capture uh, how much uh, society is currently caring uh, about an issue. And then we ask, do companies respond? And which companies respond more? Okay. In principle, one may think that, well, if society is changing, perhaps the companies that are currently farther away from 
the society standard uh, respond more. Okay, and uh, what we find is that uh, is uh, the contrary. We have a different proxy for um, capturing the corporate culture towards uh, gender equality. Some are based on ESG rating about the diversity. Others are uh, based on uh, textual analysis that uh, capture how uh, a company. Um, seem to respect the differences between employees. And then we also use the political orientation of the executive team. Typically, the democratic platform has paid more attention to gender equality uh, problems. Well, we use whether there are uh, women in the management team as another um, proxy for corporate culture. So according to all these different proxies, what we see is that companies that we would classify as pro-gender equality in these periods in which there is more public attention seem to appoint more women to the board, while companies that uh, had concern about their diversity policy from uh, rating agencies or that have a more Republican executive team, they respond much less uh, if uh, at all. Okay, So it looks like that there is no convergence. We also look at uh, Perhaps these companies uh, face uh, supply constraints. When women are in high demand, they can choose and uh, they go to companies that have a, a culture that is more inclusive. So when we look at the characteristics of the directors that are appointed, even in these periods of very uh, presumably very high demand for uh, female directors, we, uh, we find that uh, there are enough women, meaning that uh, women seem to continue to have uh, the same characteristics that had in periods of low demand, meaning that they say, say um, the women that are appointed when a lot of other women are appointed uh, seem to have the same years of executive experience. Uh, they, uh, uh, they have the same propensity of uh, high-level degrees of uh, having won uh, business-related uh, prizes, uh, have a similar level of industry experience, and so on. So there is no obvious evidence of a supply constraint. So what uh, we conclude is that the corporate culture matters for uh, how receptive uh, companies are uh, to societal change. And perhaps if one wants absolute convergence, the quotas like in California might be necessary. Yeah. Yeah, I find this very interesting. So if I understand this correctly, so what you're saying is that ex-ante culture matters. And so you say here, yeah. female director appointments generate higher abnormal announcement returns in periods of high public attention, especially in firms with an ex-ante culture less favorable to gender equality. So in some sense, if you, if you have a non-inclusive culture, let's call it, um, you actually have a higher potential 
for mm-hmm. abnormal returns. Uh, in other words, you you can you can you can increase your shareholder returns uh, by paying attention to it. Uh, an equal amount of attention in a firm that is less culturally favorable, um, mm-hmm. an equal amount of attention will have a higher shareholder return for that company, right? Is that what you're what Yeah. Yeah, so basically uh, we look at uh, the um, announcement return um, of uh, um, the appointment of uh, directors with uh, different characteristics. And um, we find that, that in these firms so that, have, uh, that are less receptive of societal change, so less receptive of gender equality, actually when they appoint a woman, they have higher returns so, uh, than uh, similar firms that are more equal. So this, I guess, uh, that uh, the, the women they appoint as directors are not going to harm the firm. They are going to be useful, and uh, perhaps it's a signal of, to the market that the company might be changing, and that's a way to generate return, a bit consistent with the anecdotes that you were starting from. So. Yeah, so it's really the difference to expectations. If market's expectations are low, Mm-hmm. Um, by taking uh, actions, the firm can substantially increase. It will be a positive shock in some mm-hmm. sense to the market, right? Um, yeah. So, so we have another set of papers, um, recent papers on monetary policy here. So I want to get into that. Uh, from 2017, forced asset sales and the concentration of outstanding debt, evidence from the mortgage mm-hmm. market. Uh, you yeah. say we provide evidence that lenders differ in their exposed incentives to internalize price default externalities associated with the liquidation of collateralized debt. Um, mm-hmm. And so, so, so when you have um, sort of unperforming, non-performing debt uh, on your books, uh, you're saying lenders uh, sort of behave differently. Uh, what, what, is the, yeah. what is the primary finding here? So um, a lot of times, and this was for sure the case during the real estate crisis, uh, forcing liquidation is, um, may lead to a negative externality, what we often call a price default spiral. What is uh, in a more concrete point of view? So um, during the, uh, the, um, the real estate crisis, uh, there were a lot of foreclosure. Uh, there is evidence that uh, if a property is foreclosed, the value of the nearby properties decreases. Okay, yeah. and of course, uh, these may give uh, uh, to the neighboring borrowers stronger incentives to default. And we can think that there are also broader externalities on the neighborhood. The properties foreclose, people move out. So uh, also the stores that are nearby have less sales and so on. Okay. So, and uh, during the real estate crisis in the US, there was a bit of this narrative that perhaps there are too many foreclosures. Okay. And uh, so the question was, uh, well, uh, there are uh, these uh, um, uh, negative externalities, perhaps there are too many foreclosures, 
So, but why wouldn't some lenders uh, take this into account? So, what we say in that paper is that, well, this depends on the incentives of the lender. So, in some neighborhoods, and those are really tiny neighborhoods, basically we take the census tract that is smaller than a zip code, okay? In some of these neighborhoods, there is one lender that has kept in the balance sheet a larger fraction of the outstanding mortgage. Okay. If this is the case, this lender, when he decides whether to liquidate a mortgage that is foreclosing the house or whether to renegotiate or so, um, postpone the payment and so on, takes into account that, well, if I foreclose, press, I can get some cash soon, but this will have a negative effect on uh, the value of the mortgages of the nearby properties that are on my balance sheet. So what we show both in a model and in our empirical analysis was that, uh, well, these lenders actually are less likely to foreclose in comparison to other lenders in the same neighborhoods that have kept very few mortgages in that area on their balance sheet. And this matters because then we show that uh, neighborhoods in which there is a high concentration of the outstanding mortgages because there are uh, very few lenders that kept these mortgages on, on their balance sheet are more likely to take into account these externalities. They experience fewer foreclosures, and uh, unsurprisingly, their house prices dropped less during the global financial, uh, during the, uh, the real estate crisis. Yeah, that makes a lot of intuitive sense. So again, if I understand this correctly, if, if there yeah. is one lender, X, mm -hmm. in, in a town Y, and that lender yeah. is the only lender in town Y, at the yeah. first house coming up to foreclosure, that lender has to consider the effect of that foreclosure on all of its other assets or all of its other yeah, yeah. Uh, lending assets in that town. And hence it would uh, essentially forego sort of the tactical benefit from foreclosing uh, because the, the net loss from the town is a lot higher. And so I was just yeah. wondering, so this may have some, well, it, it, it'd be difficult to impose a policy around this, but. From a stabilization perspective, it appears that concentration of lending is, is actually a good thing, right? So this, uh, so this is definitely true, meaning that um, we don't want to say that uh, low competition is uh, necessarily desirable. But uh, when there are these um, financial crises, when there are bad assets, concentrating the bad assets might be uh, the optimal policy in order to avoid the excessive liquidation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, uh, yeah it's obviously difficult to impose that in a, in a, in a free market system. Uh, but um, um, investors 
this is good information for investors uh, in the sense that if they're estimating what the net loss is going to be, if there is a higher concentration. So, for example, I was wondering, Marisa, you know, from a local market perspective, mm-hmm. um, and I am a real estate investor in a you know sort of a local market. I would be very interested in in, in looking at uh, sort of the concentration of lenders in that market. If there are if there are a large number of lenders, then in a negative shock, it's going to sort of propagate through the through the system. Whereas if it's only one or two lenders, it has sort of a stabilization effect on that on that local market, right? So yeah. So if you are uh, um. Uh, if you are to buy a house, uh, is uh, definitely you would expect that uh, less volatility in housing prices uh, in areas with uh, high credit concentration. On the other hand, if you are running a real estate company during the global financial crisis, a lot of institutional investors made a lot of money out of the fire sales that. Uh, were caused by very dispersed uh, ownership of the mortgages because, uh, you know, there were areas in which uh, all the mortgages were securitized. And that was basically no one was internalizing uh, any externalities because uh, the uh, owners of the mortgages, they didn't even own one mortgage, they owned the pieces of the mortgages. And uh, there are institutional investors that bought a fire sale prices, the foreclosed properties, for sure made a lot of money. So. Right, right. Yeah, I want to go that, Sorry. Yeah, go yeah. So just to elaborate on this point, there are um, uh, broader... Um, conclusions for investment because uh, in a subsequent paper um, that we published a couple of years later, we looked at the same uh, um, mechanism for um, general uh, industry shocks. So basically, there are fire sales, also companies' assets. And then basically we ask whether some banks internalize the negative effect of of fire sales by providing liquidity. And what we show there is that in industries in which the provision of credit in the in the near past, say in the five years before the shock, was more concentrated. Uh, the uh, industry returns following negative shocks are uh, much higher. And uh, the reason is that, uh, well, uh, these lenders are more likely to provide the liquidity, not only to borrowers in the industry in distress, but also to their customers and suppliers, because we know that these shocks propagate. So these industries with concentrated lending seem to get out faster from distress. And this is another investment insight that can come from the basic idea. Yeah, it seems like there could be some sort of optimum concentration because it has ambiguous effects. If if there is concentration, that, that implies there is pricing power. So for an individual investor or individual buyer, when you get into the market, you're probably paying a higher price 
um, sort of like an insurance in some sense, in a negative shock, you have stability. Yes, so um, uh, we look at uh, um, the uh, at equity returns, and of course, uh, the price of equity today um, would presumably incorporate that with some probability there will be a shock, and uh, these uh, stocks in a particular industry will perform better. So, from the point of view of the equity investors, however, this uh, would imply that. Uh, well, these shocks have uh, a, most likely a lower beta or uh, they have uh, lower downside risk. The, from uh, the point of view of the credit provision, uh, of course, the concentration can have a cost for the borrower, meaning that uh, the bank that has uh, that is uh, the large lenders uh, has pricing powers and the uh, Therefore, uh, one will have to pay for uh, this insurance. So, so there is uh, obviously a, a trade-off. But uh, um, what uh, my research in the area has suggested is that uh, um, a more, uh, more concentration in an industry or in the provision of mortgages can uh, enhance uh, stability when uh, um, shocks uh, occur. Yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. So I want to finish up with another paper, a recent paper. Uh, is there a zero lower bound? The effects yes. of negative policy rates on banks and firms. Uh, you mm -hmm. say exploiting confidential data from the euro area, we show that sound banks pass negative rates onto their corporate depositors and that pass through is not impaired when policy uh, rates move into the negative territory. So the, the intuition was that when the interest rates hit zero, you don't really have much more flexibility to, to change anything. Uh, but if, if banks are really passing on negative rates, uh, and I was talking to somebody in Switzerland uh, a couple mm -hmm. of months ago, and it is really true that you have negative interest rates, so you have to pay the bank to keep your money in the bank, so to speak, right? Yeah. And so if yeah, that's yeah. happening, it's less of a less of an issue. You are saying there is no really zero zero lower bound. So basically, um, let's start from uh, the point where macroeconomists were up to 2014, when um, policy rates started to become negative. So all the macroeconomic models basically were implying that, well, uh, the lowest rates can be is zero. And uh, when they think about the transmission of uh, negative policy rates, basically the assumption is, well, if the bank wants to charge on your deposit, for you to keep the money there, well, uh, you can just withdraw and move to cash. Therefore, there is no way for the banks uh, to uh, charge a negative rates on uh, deposits. And uh, if uh, banks are charged negative rates on uh, their uh, liquidity deposits at the central bank, this means just that bank profitability decreases, the banks will be in worse shape lowering policy rate below the zero lower bound just cannot work for a stabilization policy. 
But uh, so this was theory because the negative rates uh, never occurred. Yes. Then the European Central Banks decided to go below the zero lower bound. And of course, there was opportunity to start to look at what actually happens. And basically, um, my zero lower bound paper tells, well, many things work exactly as above the zero lower bound. What we show is that... Um, when uh, the European Central Bank started to communicate to the market, look, not only the policy rate is now negative, but will stay negative for a while, then banks started, at least some banks, started to charge negative rates on their larger depositors. And the larger depositors are typically corporations. Okay, so that's, um, and uh, we document that uh, the banks that uh, charge negative rates on deposits are uh, banks that uh, have uh, investment grade rating, very few, few non-performing loans, that is a healthy bank. Is this surprising? If you think of it, it's not, because the um, uh, German Treasury bills have negative rates, and keeping deposits in a healthy bank provides liquidity, the same convenience for the holder as holding safe treasuries. Okay. So basically, we started documenting that this occur, and then we explore a bit more the transmission mechanism. That works a bit differently, but we see an expansion, meaning that a firm that is charged a negative rate on its cash decides, well, perhaps it's no longer time to pile cash holdings for the bad times and start investing more. So we documented these uh, positive effects uh, of uh, negative interest rate policies for the first time. Yeah, so this is this is really a good thing, right? Um, a, a negative interest rate would have the right behavior. Um, mm -hmm. Essentially, the firm investing more rather than holding cash, and that that is mm -hmm. what we are trying to accomplish through a monetary policy. Uh, so, so you're you're also saying that. Essentially, a sound bank, a uh, high-rated bank, uh, their policies are going to be, they're going to proxy sort of treasury, uh, treasury node behavior. If there is negative interest on the treasury side, then a AAA-rated bank will, will have essentially the same. Uh, but yeah. you mentioned that it is only for the large depositors, so corporations. Mm -hmm. uh, and obviously, I was wondering about the retail arena. There are different ways the banks could charge a negative interest rate. They could, they don't necessarily have to charge an interest rate. They could just increase, you know, uh, costs for services, yeah, uh, costs so, for cash yeah. and checks. You know, uh, and they could yeah. do a lot of different things to to essentially get to the same point. I would think, right? Yeah, that's what they did. So. Um... Uh, on uh, retail deposits uh, that uh, most of them, you know, are smaller, is uh, we don't see um, negative rates. And, uh, uh, you know, towards the end of our sample, we see that some banks started to uh, charge uh, 
some negative rates also on household deposits. But we see that all banks, independently of their health, have increased fees. And the reason is that the fees, uh, you know, are more opaque and uh, is uh, on a small deposit, the fees uh, can uh, increase the bank profits and uh, the effective interest rate uh, very efficiently. So there is no need to go negative. Right. Excellent. So um, I, I want to ask you sort of uh, not in the paper, but a general question. Um, COVID crisis, uh, things are appear to be settling down, but we have more variations coming through. It's unclear if vaccines uh, that we have are really going to take care of it. Um, so what's your general view as to the world economy and, uh, you know, how the countries are dealing with, uh, where are we in the cycle? Are we sort of plateauing um, at the bottom or, uh, or things are coming back up again? So I think that so the way in which I think of the COVID um, crisis is that uh, it one generated a lot of uncertainty and uh, it really changed the demand for uh, products. Now, is uh, if indeed the vaccine are uh, effective and hopefully distribution reaches also developing countries, uh, hopefully the economy will. Uh, start uh, booming again uh, and uh, we will uh, be out of it. I think that uh, over the next few years, uh, what um, I'm also very excited to look at uh, research-wise is uh, how international trade and uh, supply chains, uh, that is, uh, trade between different firms uh, will change. Because with... uh, COVID, uh, climate risk, very uh, uh, tariffs and trade wars. What uh, we saw is that uh, companies have faced a lot of uncertainty about uh, their uh, customers and suppliers. And uh, we still uh, don't know much about uh, how this has uh, affected um, uh, relationship uh, between uh, firms, whether these will uh, give uh, rise to a merger waves as firms seek to uh, to um, to acquire their suppliers in order to secure uh, uh, inputs and so on. But uh, hopefully we are out of it. I guess the epidemiologists know more than uh, financial economists, so I cannot all at most share a hope that uh, yeah I, I want to get your insight quickly so uh, it, it felt like like you were saying uh, the relationships in the supply chain and and other aspects uh, there could be long-term negative effects there uh, at least on the surface it appeared that when you have a systemic shock to the world economy in a highly interconnected system Mm-hmm. Uh, it appears suboptimum to to really have country by country policies um, because we cannot really solve a pandemic by you know vaccinating a town or a city or 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 even a country to some extent unless unless you're New Zealand or you know something like that yeah <laughs> where you can yeah, shut down the borders um, what what is your what's your view on that how do you how do you intervene in a in a worldwide 
systemic problem like a pandemic? Well, uh, I, I wish there had been more coordination, but even if I look at the European Union, I think that from the point of view of the vaccine and the vaccine rollout, there has been a lot of coordination, but uh, policies in different countries uh, differ dramatically, in a, even in use of masks. Okay, but on the other end, uh, within the EU, people can travel reasonably freely. Perhaps you have to exhibit a COVID test or the vaccination certificate, but uh, we know that these are limitations. And uh, yeah, I hope that uh, we'll get out of it soon. So that's, uh, I think that this coordination has just not been there and the limitations in the initial vaccine supply don't help, right? So yeah. Yeah. You can still so. survive with the UK and so on. So these are very difficult problems. So. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Yeah, uh, this has been great, Maria Sandra. Uh, thanks so, so much for spending time with me and uh, enjoy the rest of the vacation. Thanks a lot. Thank you for having me. So okay. that's uh, thank you. Bye. Bye. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.